0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we look at the left's long march through the museums of the West, we give some commentary on the return bout of ACCC versus Facebook, and we run the numbers on the cost of our exploding prison population. Then in our books and culture segment we have some shows and we have some books. We have the Amazon series The Boys, an old classic boardwalk empire, a Spanish crime drama, and Chris Berg will tell us about some new books from, well, from Chris Berg. <laughs> I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg.
1: Thank you, Scott. I'm just looking forward to talking about myself.
0: Yeah, why not? And uh, and blockchain, maybe. <laughs> also in the IPA studio is my colleague, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. And finally, we welcome back to the Looking Forward Microphone RMIT Professor and Adjunct Fellow at the IPA, Sinclair Davidson. Hi, how are you? It's great to have you back, Sync. Thank you. Don't forget, this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. And if you're listening to this on an app, this is your chance to give us a review and do make it a good one. It all helps with the rankings. We're gonna start off uh, linking back to something. Back in July, we talked about the ACCC's inquiry into digital platforms, which is the official phrase for things like Facebook and Google. That was a fascinating discussion, and uh, since then, uh, big tech's certainly been mobilising. Chris Berg, what's the latest in that saga? Well,
1: yes, yeah, Scott, so the policy process moves inexorably on. Um, the ACCC handed down its report into digital platforms um, a few months ago, and now the Treasury is looking into um, how it can start implementing some of the ACCC's recommendations. I wouldn't say that this is a done deal by any means, and I'm glad that it's not, but certainly there's a strong suggestion that the government is wanting to move forward with at least some of the recommended regulations. Um, This week, Facebook and Google actually responded um, uh, quite aggressively to the Treasury inquiry and therefore to the ACCC. Um, Facebook have argued that the ACCC recommendations would make targeted advertising practically unworkable in Australia, and it's seriously out of step with the other largest regulatory um, imposition in the world on this space, which is the European Union's General um, Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, um, and points out that, in fact, the ACCC found that there was no anti-competitive conduct by Facebook and um, both Google and Facebook are also very deeply concerned about the idea that there might be a regulated or regulatory sanctioned negotiation of revenue sharing between platforms so between themselves and newspaper publishers so the um, regulators would like to insert themselves directly in the middle of a negotiation between digital platforms and the newspapers. Um, So in fact Sinclair and I as well as some of our colleagues um, put in a submission with the International Centre for Law and Economics um, which is a think tank based in Portland that's been very opposed to that and we've been working on Um, these issues for a while. But I'll let Sinclair talk about perhaps what is the main issue that we have with the digital platforms regulation so far?
2: Um, Profoundly and fundamentally, it's anti-competitive. Um, the government want to come along and uh, impose antitrust trust on, on new forms of business, more efficient forms of business, in order to protect weaker competitors who should basically die, um, because that's how the competitive process works. And um, so we, we're having a situation whereby the, the, the current government have gifted a regulatory uh, uh, um, outcome to newspapers who are more or less inefficient and are not doing as good a job at providing people with news as, say, the new digital media. And uh, um, more or less, this is the the protect the weaker competitors kind of philosophy that we've seen with antitrust from the very beginning. It's the whole idea that because something is big, it's obviously bad and needs to be regulated by government. And we're hearing all the same crazy arguments we've heard before, um, national security, won't somebody think of the children, (laughs) um, and so on and so forth, when in actual fact, this is the competitive process at work. uh, The strong displace the weak, consumer satisfaction is maximized, and so there's actually no role for government here. and, and, and it's quite indicative that uh, the ACCC were out and about um, internationally last week and all the other international regulators were saying, what a great job they're doing. How wonderful it is that they're out there doing something about these evil large businesses who are taking away everybody's bread and butter. Um, and it, it, it's just silliness. We've heard this before, the, 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 the bug makers, the bug whippy, uh, whip makers, all the sort of stuff. Any redundant um, um, organization um, needs to be displaced. And this is how the capitalist economy, is supposed to work. This is how it does work. Um, and again, we're seeing the political process intervening in more or less consumer satisfaction.
1: So, Andrew, this is Australian regulators leading the world again. Should we be
3: excited? Should we be proud of RACCC? Well, as with everything, <laughs> it's, it's very important to be leading the world. Um, <laughs> Australians love to hear that. Let's have a, a league table. Of, other, other regulators
1: uh, could rank us. Yes. Yeah. Um, the ashes. The no, ashes, no, but ashes I, I, I
3: wondered about this. So what is it about the, the proposed regulations that operates in this way as you say to prop up weaker competitors um, and what is it what would it look like um, absent such a regulation um, so opposing opposing the intervention of the government what is the outcome for say the you mentioned newspapers what's the outcome for for the news business what's the outcome for some of these other um, basically content, uh, providers uh, inputs into what it is that Facebook and Google claim to do. So there's an interesting thing here that they are um, competitors with news organizations and things when they want to be, oh this is you can't regulate so as to give a leg up to news content providers um, because that's that harms our business. But then when you come to them and say, well, okay, you're a news business, you have an editorial policy, so let's regulate that to make sure that you don't corrupt the minds of the entire world using your dominant platform and your editorial policy. They say, oh, no, 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 we're neutral. So it's a, it's a, is, is it a case of, of Facebook, Google, these big platforms uh, wanting to eat their cake and have it too? That's a question.
2: <laughs> yes, um, certainly that's the kind of question that we hear from the statists all the time, um, <laughs> that I'm, I'm, I'm just not convinced by it. Um, the, the 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 argument about uh, Google and Facebook are taking away advertising revenue from the so-called quality media, which we've been waiting for for 200 years, um, taking away quali- uh, um, uh, um, advertising revenue from the, the, the quality media uh, and simply distributing it to themselves,
3: well, that's competition.
2: Um, we, we've got a more more efficient way of
3: communicating with people. So they are a more efficient news service? No, this, they, are, are, more, the no, 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 they are a more efficient news but service. But they're not a
2: news service. They're, 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 not, they're not creating the news. They are a more efficient way of communicating between people.
3: But then why do they care if the government regulates or another way, in some other way boosts the people who actually do report news and produce that content? I mean, why would they? Why do they care if they're not a competitor to those organisations? Because they are
2: taking money away. They, 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 are com- they, they are a competitor in the advertising market but they are not a news service. So they are providing people with, with with interhuman communications and now I need to have the government's permission to share a photo of my children with my mother. Um, I, I don't need the government's permission to communicate with anybody. Does the government care about the
3: advertising business?
1: Yes, they do. Oh, it absolutely does. In, in that the sense is precisely
2: that what is going on here. So it's a combination yeah. of, the,
1: of the advertising business and taxation revenue. No, no, no. The, in, the, now, in, the now, sense now, in the sense that the advertising business is the entire... So I I understand. So there's a debate going on in the United States right now, which we've discussed on the show in the past about um, content neutrality on these digital media platforms and so forth. Now, I I understand that's an interesting debate. I think um, there's less to it than meets the eye, but it's an interesting debate. But it's not where this comes from. And it's not where the ACCC's Digital Platform Inquiry comes from because it quite clearly, and if you look at the policy history of it, it came from a dispute between News Limited and um, Google and Facebook, particularly Facebook, uh, and uh, I should also say Google News, that, um, that they felt, or the News Limited and some other newspapers, news organisations felt, that the fact that um, we were the, the social media sites were linking to individual stories within the newspapers meant that people weren't going to the front page of the websites and therefore were denying advertising value. Now, on top of that, of course, the left has also added on, well, also we need to um, ensure that there's lots of local journalism and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't come down to whether yeah. the social media platforms are neutral. It comes down to a dispute between a traditional traditional sector under a massive amount of strain the newspapers and a new sector that it feels is cutting its lunch on its revenue. revenue and and now i again i think that analysis actually what the accc's done is is made some serious um uh quantitative errors but but that's the dispute and that's a rent-seeking but, but dispute but this
0: is uh, this is where andrew's question has has shed some light on it. I, f- I find it curious like if there's a A market for regulation, which is um, uh, in Yes Minister, they talk about the politician syllogism. It's like the people say you must do something and the politician says, well, this is something, therefore I will do it. (laughs) I I feel like there is, for better or worse, a latent demand to regulate Facebook and Google somehow about some things and, and some of it goes to the issues Andrew's <coughs> speaking about and, and, and then there's issues around privacy, there's issues around data protection. Okay, there's so... Also, but, and, but then what, what we have before us is, is a particular issue, none of which doesn't really speak to me to what people are necessarily interested in. It's not about consumer benefit. This is a, uh, forgive the jargon, a, a, a B2B Inquiry. <laughs> this, 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 <laughs> this is all about how nothing is more interesting than B 2 B. This uh, is
2: old-fashioned rent-seeking, where people run off to the government for protection because they're not good enough. And you know, you might think, okay, who cares? It's, it's, it's only Facebook. But it turns out the whole world and their dog has run off to government for protection. This is just an old-fashioned regulate my competitors because I can't. But compete the other thing, I, well,
0: but I, I, but I, I think no, no, got I got a supplementary question.
2: The <laughs> other thing that you
0: invariably find when such regulations are set up to protect said industries is it very rarely works. I mean, I, I believe the last time I looked, the, the recommendation was this, that a code of conduct uh, which would uh, guide these platforms in dealing with the news media, not just newspapers, but also radio and and television and whatever else, uh, would be mandated by ACMA, uh, that dreadful uh, communications and media regulator, uh, and it will all be brought into this orbit. and. My, my question is, why should those media organisations really think that coming under the um, umbrella of ACMA is going to do them any good at all in the
1: long run? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. But I want to I want to raise your first point, which is, um, of course, there's calls for regulations over these new technologies. They are extremely frontier new technologies with extremely significant Implications for the way we relate to each other, for the way politics works, for the way society works. Of course, they are dramatically significant, different changes mm-hmm. to basically everything we do. And you know, we all spend our time on the train or on the tram or on the bus looking at our social media. It, it, it's all consuming, but it's very unclear, and there's absolutely no agreement about what the actual practical material problems are and from there of course there's definitely no agreement and there's no suggestion that um any regulation would quote solve the new social challenges that these technologies have raised so um that that's deeply uncomfortable for a lot of us because um we see that something massive has changed we have no idea how we can use the state to respond but um, such is the nature of Frontier technology. Yeah, this,
3: this, this idea, that the, this framing of it as a dispute about um, how the advertising market works...
1: That's prob- the ACCC's framing, yeah, to be clear. Is, yeah, <laughs> probably, <it'll>,
3: probably <laughs> a lot. I agree with Scott here. I think it probably elides a number of the other issues that have put this uh, in, the, in the public forefront in the first place, um, that there's an underlying uh, concern that a platform like Facebook... Um, with its huge, you know, re- reserves of knowledge about every individual on the planet, is actually dangerous in some other way, and but that this but, but is just one so? way of how, the re- so?
2: how, how How is an organisation that only knows what you have only ever told it somehow dangerous?
3: Well, it knows. It knows. It knows all kinds of other things about other people who are similar to you. It can build a profile. It can propagandise to you. Can manipulate you um, to the extent that Facebook's ambition is to. Um, evolve into the portal through which you use the internet. This was what it wanted to be. I'd, I don't think it's going to get there at this point. But um, what it wanted was that you know Facebook would basically be your homepage to the internet and you'd access everything through it. Um, and that would give you give them tremendous control Doesn't, over how you haven't, interface haven't with you actually information. answered
2: you, Haven't you actually answered your own question? So they wanted to be the portal through which you access the world and yet they have failed at that very thing. By themselves. By by themselves. Yes. So they've actually failed to to, to achieve this ambition. So why is this a problem?
3: The standardisation across the various monopolies on the internet, um, under pressure from um, the people who run them, uh, who are not capitalists, these businesses are not run by Chris Berg or Sinclair Davidson. They (laughs) are run...
1: Well, you say that, but you don't know my holdings.
3: Uh, these, are, these aren't these are people who are even committed to even the idea of profit, much less the idea of a market economy going forward. And and even if they are not right, even if I'm wrong in characterising this current crop, of people I think that Mark
1: Zuckerberg way. really uh, likes the money. To be fair, yes. Uh,
3: uh, have, have you seen his house? He likes the he likes the he Earth. likes the power. He likes the power even more. I've uh, always like sus- everyone uh, I'm like always, everyone in I've history. Always
2: Very suspicious of arguments where you start off by saying somebody rather wants to have power than money. Um, there's actually very few such you, individuals. You, what, in the world. Well, why uh, do I, Facebook
3: always come to the table with the regulators? Why? Because, because they're, they're prepared to trade. Because no, they they're don't, tra- no, Because they're prepared to trade money for power. Because
2: the regulators have men with guns who enforce their views, and Zuckerberg doesn't. Zuckerberg's only got money. And if we dealt in a world where there was only money and not governments with guns, we'd all be much better off.
0: Oh, look, I, I don't know. Th- listening to this, I've got, I've got Sink on my left and, and uh, I'm Bush on, on, on my right. My right, <laughs> on right. And uh, I, f- I feel like, you know, when, when they asked Kissinger, you know, who, who did the US want to win the Iran Iraq war? And he's like, can't they both lose?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I want to tell you a funny story. I was, I was singing the praises of Libra which is the Facebook money at CPAC a few weeks ago, and uh, um, this this young lady put up her hand and said to me, why should I trust fascist book with my money? And my answer was because I I trust Mark Zuckerberg more than I trust the Reserve Bank governor of Australia, (laughs) Um, because Zuckerberg at least is putting his own money on the table, whereas Philip Lowe is putting my money on the table. so For good. Good. I I I just love that fascist book. Fascist book, that's fascist that's, book. that's completely that's a that's a new meme
0: um as opposed to Mark's book or something. Yeah, like
2: that. yeah Mark's yeah, book
0: bushy. We'll work on that. Uh, now also speaking of platforms, I was looking at abc.net.au recently and found myself reading a uh, terrific story on um what's happening with Western Australia's uh prisons, the vast increase in the Prison population and what, what that is costing the taxpayers of that state, and uh, Andrew Bushnell, where did they get all that information
3: from? Thank you, Scott, for that. <laughs> very very nice, very Set nice up. segue. The um, <laughs> the the ABC ran uh, some coverage of uh, a brief that we wrote, uh, that I wrote on behalf of our criminal justice project. Um, about why Western Australia needs criminal justice reform. So we have this uh, series of briefs that we do. um, They're called Parliamentary Research Briefs. They're summaries of the deeper research that we do um, that introduce uh, our research to parliamentarians and their staff and people who actually make decisions about this kind of stuff. Uh, And this one is basically an introduction uh, for Western Australian Parliament to our criminal justice work, which we've been doing now for three years. Um, Our criminal justice project has produced a, a body of research um, demonstrating the unsustainable rise of incarceration in Australia, the way this interacts with the, with government overreach, the, go, the way the government um, uses criminal law as a form of quasi-regulation. So all these kinds of things that we're interested in anyway. Um, but the over-incarceration idea um, sort of connects to uh, our work around opportunity, um, the idea that we want to see individuals in this country um, stand on their own two feet and develop good lives for themselves. And when they do the wrong thing, yes, we're here to, to defend a retributive system, a system of punishment, but we're also trying to convey the message that this country needs to be a little bit more, um, if not forgiving, a little bit more wary of downstream consequences of an unsustainable incarceration rate. And so what we've seen in Western Australia is a Western Australia mirrors um, these trends that we've seen across the country, the across the country, uh, incarceration is up 40% in the last 10 years. That's the uh, incarceration rate, the uh, in, uh, absolute in absolute terms, um, it's risen uh, considerably as well. Western what
1: sort of numbers are we?
3: What, in, what? So in, in Western Australia, which I have in front of me... Um,
1: <laughs> so that's the evidence you'll provide? No, no, no. no, 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 <laughs> no the, just uh, just to put a dimension no, no, so in. in Austra- so in we a, get the trend. Across, across,
3: the, across the whole country, there's m- now more than 40,000 people in Australian prisons on any given day. Um, this is up, uh, as I say, um, considerably, up up about 40% over the last 10 years. Um It costs uh, about $4 billion in operational costs alone to run our prisons. So that doesn't include capital works. So here in Victoria, we've seen $1.8 billion committed to new prison places. A couple of years ago, the New South Wales government, flush with cash, committed $3.9 billion to new prisons. That's not included in that $4 billion figure. $15 billion on criminal justice in total every year in Australia. So it's a considerable amount of money. The growth is really high, and this brief provides a bit of a framework for how you might go about uh, arresting that trend, if not over time. Particularly
0: in the, and WA's uh, not exactly rolling in cash at the moment either. No, and so this with, is... With the, the end the, of the resources boom.
3: That's right, yeah.
2: But sorry, to just to be clear, what? how are we defining what is a criminal here? I mean, are we talking about murderers or are we talking about jaywalkers? I mean...
3: So the the the, the thing about criminal justice reform, the, the starting point is... This a question of how do we maximise community safety for the amount of money that we're putting in. That's the thing that we're buying. And what we're arguing is that as incarceration rises, it's more important to do perform some sort of triage between the people that we are mad at and the people we're afraid of. That's the language that comes from Texas, where uh, the Republican Party had has had considerable success in reversing the trend of rising incarceration. So what we're talking about here is rationalising the criminal justice system towards community safety by making sure that the people who go to prison are the, are the dangerous people, the violent people, um, recidivists who have shown no uh, inclination to change their behaviour. Take those people out of the community, use that use that money for incarceration for them, that's the, the cost benefit that you get. But for people who are first-time offenders, or non-violent offenders, low risk of recidivism because they've they've aged out of crime, um, things like that. There's a considerable group of those people. If we move them into in- alternatives to incarceration, which are all cheaper, which are still to, punishments, which yes. are still punishments, and this is this is the thing. Techno- technological change has actually made this a little bit more feasible because you can now track people in the community. Uh, by GPS, we take um, away face- Facebook accounts, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <And> you, you <laughs> can impose well, exactly. we we'll upload in- their driver's licences to a national facial <laughs> yeah. recognition You can impose scheme. all kinds of different uh, conditions yeah. on people, um, and and in this way, still maintain a, a punitive effect, uh, maintain the retributive system, but do it in a way that um, avoids some of the consequences of uh, of mass incarceration. What I've,
1: what I've always liked about this project is that. Um, From uh, – we conservatives, liberals, libertarians, free marketeers, we always spend a lot of time and always have spent a lot of time saying what should be illegal and what should be – so what should be legal and what should be illegal. So we've got really strong views about what the regulatory state should do, the criminal – state should do and so forth but what we we never really close the loop there we're like oh okay and obviously murder is going to be illegal or stealing is going to be illegal so people will i don't know just be punished or something along those lines or they'll just go to jail or or, or, or we'll do something horrible to them what's what's great about this project what I've always enjoyed about it, is that it's, it it provides us with a way to talk about, okay, so they have violated a law. Someone has violated a law, we, and a law that we might think is um, a perfectly just law, but we also want them to come out the other end. We'd We'd rather them also be a functioning member of the community at oh, the other okay. side. And now we know – so much about how rehabilitation, certainly in the prison system, is a absolute disaster and is basically a fiction. Um, at least now we can talk about well, you know, how how are we going to build the just and prosperous society, even in the presence of people who break its laws?
3: Yeah. So, fift- you say that about rehabilitation. It's like fifty-six percent of people who are in prison on any given day have been in prison before. Um, 45% will return to prison within two years of their release. So it gives you an idea of how prison is not correcting a number of people's behaviour. One of the things that um, really get, got the IPA interested in this was this question of um, we know that employment is the bedrock of a good life and we also know um, that it's the, it's the bedrock of successful rehabilitation for the same reason. So for these um, people that we're talking about, the, the goal has to be to get them to to start seeing themselves as autonomous individuals who can make their own decisions in life uh, and stand on their own two feet. And I think that's the, that's the really underlying sort of moral message of this whole thing is that we want to have a society where um, people who do the wrong thing are punished. But when we punish people, we actually make two decisions, particularly when we incarcerate them. We make one decision to put them in and then we make another decision to let them out. And we all have an interest in what they look like when they come out and to the extent that we can reform our system in a cost-effective way to make sure that people when they return to the community are more likely to be productive citizens then that's absolutely something we should do and we should do it because it is justified entirely in terms of this uh, public good that we want, which is community safety. This is the this is the framing. It's not um, oh, wouldn't it be like there are all, all, there's win-win wins here all over the place. It's good for the mm. it's good for um, you know the victim to see someone punished. It's good for the person punished to have an opportunity for reform. But the framing really is at the moment you, the taxpayer, spending four billion dollars just running the prisons. What are you buying for that money? And there are other things. That we can do, so that mm. you get the thing that you think you are buying, which is community safety.
0: One, one of the other great things about this project is it, it's fighting against the uh, tendency to, if you, you know, the old gag. If you if you want to know what's going to happen in Australia, just look at America and sort of wait ten years. <laughs> and and we've they've, they've come so far out the other side of this kind of experience that you now have Donald Trump in the White House leading the charge for criminal justice reform. He's Tweeting out, he, he's got um, uh, Kim Kardashian in the in the Oval Office, you know, supporting um, uh, the reduction, you know, reduction of crazy sentences under the old three strikes laws,
3: and th- and that that is actually part of it is that if you look at America, which has sky high incarceration rates, which they're only just now really addressing over the last ten years. Um, If you look at their incarceration rate in the early 1980s, it was about where our national incarceration rate is now and it quadrupled almost within 30 years. So acting now, one of the reasons to act now is so that we don't follow them down this path where suddenly um, the incarceration rate goes from uh, here in Australia, it's about 220 per 100,000. In the United States, it peaked at more than eight hundred and fifty. Uh, per 100,000, we already have extraordinarily high incarceration rates among some sectors of the community, in the Indigenous community, particularly in Western Australia, Um, arguably the most uh, incarcerated people on the planet. So we already know that we could easily follow down this path, but fortunately the Americans have already done it, they've already (laughs) invested all of the money or wasted all of the money finding that out, so let's take the lesson. To
0: to paraphrase uh, Lincoln Steffens, I've seen the future and it doesn't work. Okay. So let's avoid it at all
1: costs. <laughs> One of the things that um, Senator Bob Day, who was a great free marketeer, um, family first senator, um, uh, w- made the point where he would spend a lot of time talking about the minimum wage, um, arguing against the minimum wage and particularly pointing out that it... Um, that it disproportionately affected people who were marginalised. And it affected young workers, obviously. It affected older workers who um, might be trying to get back into the workforce if their pension wasn't enough or so forth. It, it um, harmed Indigenous people and it harmed former prisoners as well. And I thought that was a really strong way to connect up this traditional care that we as free marketeers have. We want to get people out into the workforce with the the, the, the sort of cutting-edge criminal justice reform project that we now need to do?
3: This is the, one of, one of the underlying things is that's been, for me, over three years as I've been talking about this with politicians and with people who work in the space, is really the, the difference between um, ex-offenders and these other groups who, um, you know, we're, we're hoping to see um, some opportunity extended to and for them to take advantage of these is that there's this element of moral desert right that people deserve to be punished but and and personally I am one of these conservative voters (laughs) and I I think that's absolutely true but we need to take seriously the idea that um, a punishment is a discrete thing it's not um, you did the wrong thing once and now you're doomed to a terrible life. We don't want to instill that attitude in people. We don't want to have, I think, that attitude as a society. Um, If I could change any one thing about Australia um, and that my eyes have been kind of open to um, through this work is that I think Australians can be somewhat unforgiving compared to Americans. Um, So we've done a lot of work comparing the criminal justice systems in both countries and one of the things that the American reformers have really been strong on is this idea of redemption, that people who do the wrong thing can then redeem themselves by doing the right thing. Um, and if I could if I could change anything, um, it would be to change that attitude and, and to get people to understand that you can't just write people off in this life. You shouldn't do that.
1: Is that because it's more of a secular... Um, yeah. State in Australia, or
3: yeah. So the the certainly Christian groups in the United States, in particular, have had a big role I- in promoting that line within the Republican Party, um, and and groups like Prison Fellowship um, are active here in Australia as well. It's just a line that probably doesn't resonate quite as much with our politicians and with our public, and I think that's a I think that's a little bit of a shame. Notwithstanding, as I say, I'm, I, I absolutely agree that punishment is a key part of this. Um, In fact, I would say one of the things that we are trying to do is defend the retributive system from more radical prison abolitionist approaches and to say, you know, no, you can have a system where people who do the wrong thing are punished but also where we have a a little bit more... I'm not saying... I'm not a starry-eyed idealist but a little bit more
0: hope for people. uh, If I could just... uh can't let an episode go by without talking about identity politics. Um, <laughs> what do you describe? That's that's an interesting reflection. It is absolutely bipartisan. I mean, this is one of the things about uh, uh, social media mobs, Twitter mobs, uh, the the worst end of the Me Too movement. I mean, there's a, there's a reason, quite a reasonable end as well, obviously. But um, this idea that once you have committed the offence, and the bar for offence seems to be getting lower and lower. You, you are tarred for life where, you know, there's an uh, increasing thing, you know, it's like it's branded on your forehead and that's it. And um, we see that in, in society, we see it in our punishment systems. It's, uh, so I don't know where I'm going with this, yeah, uh, I th- I think but, but you've actually struck one, me with one, that one, reflection. One, one, of,
3: one of the things that's, that's key to remember, of course, is that forgiveness is for the penitent. Um, and so there are, you know, some people who will go into the criminal justice system with no intention of reforming. Um, and this is something that obviously has to, has to be managed. There are some people who, you know, we, I've said that the, the, our prescription, if we have one, really is to do with employment because we think that that's like uh, the key enabler of a good life. Um, there are some, some people for whom that is going to always be a challenge. Um, I think that's probably the, the really difficult part of this reform, but we shouldn't let... The difficulties in those particular cases or or with those people obscure what we can do uh, in a reform sense for other people in the system. It's not an excuse.
0: Very good. Um, Thank you for that, Andrew Bushnell. Chris Berg, uh, let's talk about something that uh, the great Henry Ergus has, uh, has put into The Australian about museums. Um, and tell us about Henry for a start, too, because he's, he's a terrific guy. He's actually an economist, but he is actually
1: a terrific bloke. Henry is a... As, as in
2: they are somehow different.
1: Can be, can Yeah, yeah. No, a, Present a company g- accepted. Henry's a great guy with a storied career, but right now he is um, a uh, columnist with The Australian um, and has been doing some fantastic work over the last couple of years that he's been writing a column. And he's also a blogger on Cadillac Files, Sinclair Davidson's legendary yes. blog. Um, Henry had a great piece this week, which I think is worth delving into, on woke museums so this is um, a museum you don't fall asleep um, yeah yeah a a rare woke museum so the piece and we'll certainly put this up in show notes the piece is called Trying to Redefine Museums a Disease of Our Times and in the piece Henry has drawn attention to something that most people may not have been following very closely but this is the effort of um, uh, the International Society for Museums who's Name, precise name escapes me right now, um, the International Society for Museums, in trying to redefine what it means to be a museum. Sorry, it's the International Council for Museums. So how do you define a museum? And Henry has pointed this out, that it is only just recently changed. Now, the traditional definition of a museum was as follows, and I'll read this. It's any permanent establishment administered in the general interest... For the purpose of preserving, studying, and enhancing by various means, and in particular of exhibiting to the public for its delectation and instruction, groups of objects and specimens of cultural value, sounds, Pretty straightforward, sounds like a museum. We can quibble, we can have some small arguments. Um, Sounds sounds like communism. Sounds like communism. Public interest. Wait for this, Ah. Sinclair. Hold on your hat. Delectation. Delectation. For delectation and instruction. All right. So, all right. So, that's a definition from 1951. Now, the ICOM committee, the International Council of Museums, has, however, gone through a revolution in the last year or so. And the, I, I, it has formed a committee to suggest that museums should instead be focusing more on the core concerns of our time, which is, of course, inequality and in human rights, globalization, migration and climate change, that we should be denaturalizing and decolonizing the um, definition of what is a museum to avoid problematic 20th century language including the naive singularity of the term society. I'm reading as much of this as I can out <laughs> just to anger Andrew before I throw it to him. Um, it is absurd for mil- the museums to claim be quick. political neutrality and we should abandon the binary hierarchies of Western <laughs> rationalism. Anyway, okay, so I'm going to read you the new definition and um, forgive me on, because it's, it's a bit lengthy. But I think it's worth just spending some real the, time. The, on
0: This is like a satire that from that Roger Scruton would it just is describe. This, just this, 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 this is the, right. the what, do you, what, do you, what do you call it, uh, Parisian nonsense? Um, the uh, nonsense machine. The so nonsense yeah. machine. So to do
1: this right, I want Andrew. Can you ask me what a museum is, Chris? What is a museum? Thank you for asking, Andrew. Museums are democratising inclusive and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogue about the pasts and <laughs> the futures. The pasts. Hey, hold on, hold on. I've got a lot to get through. <laughs> Acknowledging and addressing the conflicts and challenges of the present, they hold artefacts and specimens in trust for society, safeguard diverse memories for future generations and guarantee equal rights and equal access ...to heritage for all people Museums are not for-profit why, why are there more why are there many pasts but only one present no no there's actually many pasts and many futures Scott I but only wanna, one present uh, clearly one present Museums are not for-profit I want to be clear about that they're participatory yeah. and transparent what about them they museum, work in what ac- about Mona in, and Hobart they work in active partnership with and for diverse communities to collect preserve research interpret exhibit and enhance understandings of the world, aiming to contribute to human dignity and social justice, global equality and planetary well-being. Andrew, does that satisfy your question of what is a museum?
3: (laughs) I'm struck struck by the the arrogance. I've set it up for you. I'm struck by the arrogance. I'm struck by the egomania of present generations to try and squeeze the entire history of the world into the narrow perspective of whatever faddish nonsense <laughs> has captured our institutions. I, I think at the very least, notwithstanding however you feel about the analysis that prevails in our institutions right now, at the very least, you should be humble enough to concede that the history of the world is a little bit more complex than whatever you read in Jack Derrida. <laughs> I think it's just it, it frustrates me this. When I read this story... Um, I, you know, it's a classic laugh or cry kind of moment because what we've lost, and this is the this is the thing about being a conservative, I guess, is that the past is the past is purposive in a way. So, right? a
2: single past or a
1: multiple past? Oh yeah, the past. pasts, yeah, no, which pasts.
3: Um, <laughs> however you look at however you look at them, the various pasts they have a function, right, which is to teach you things about where people have lived. <laughs> how people have done good things and what you might do in your life to also do good things that benefit yourself, your family and your fellow man. Um, it's not about critiquing them. It's not about, you know, uh, you, know you could go to a museum, a private for-profit museum, one of the best in South America, in Lima. No, you no, can no, see, no, 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 no,
1: no, can't be for-profit. Yeah, profit. exactly. Exa- <laughs> and this is the thing. And, you, yeah. and you can Museums definitionally are not for-profit.
3: Yeah, and you can pay to see um, ceramics that are thousands of years old, all of which have giant phalluses on them. <laughs> now, to what? To keep everyone, everyone's, like, oh, you know, they really shouldn't have done that. You know, they really shouldn't have um, encoded their male supremacy in their ceramics. Right? You could judge it like that, but that would be extremely stupid. Right? And this is, the, this is the thing that is, is frustrating about it, is that the arrogance, the sheer arrogance of thinking that whatever it is that's in your head right now is the grandest possible thing that humans have ever thought, that you're at the very cutting edge of the arc of history. It's just so stupid.
1: One of the things that the committee was very frustrated with or very angry about was the phrase in the traditional definition cultural value. It protects specimens of cultural value. Sinclair, <laughs> I'll throw <it> to you. <laughs> um, How should we think about things of cultural value? Uh, <laughs>
2: Well, I I read Henry's article and I kind of thought, well, all right, it's hard to get excited. Um, So here's the thing, we've got one definition and we've got another definition. And if you actually read through the second definition, it more or less boils down to the same junk, called artifacts that are in museums today, will still be in museums tomorrow, with the same junk that was in the museums last week. Um, And in actual fact, this is a story of too many administrators with not enough work to do. So I have no doubt... the the story of modern society. Yes, (laughs) that is the story of modern society. And and Scott, you brought up a a Yes Minister. Well, there's another episode of Yes Minister where Sir Humphrey says to Bernard, "Um, what happens if we've got a piece of land in Nottingham and three possible uses, what would we do? And Bernard says, well, we'd have a working committee and we'd come up with definitions and we'd have multiple things and report backs and meetings and so on. And Sir Humphrey says, months of fruitful work. <laughs> well, this committee has probably done months of fruitful work and good luck to them. They flew around the world and they had nice dinners in Paris and, and, Paris, and, and all this sort of stuff. And they came up with this gumph. And in actual fact, I've got no doubt that when I go to the British Museum in two years' time, in ten years' time, I will still see the sort of the Rosetta Stone. I will still see all sorts of artefacts that have been stolen from savages all around the world, throughout all of history, and I will stand there thinking, wow, look at all of this. So in actual fact, what's going to be happening on the ground is not really going to change. But we've had a whole bunch of administrators come up with rubbish. They've redefined what, what museums have always done, in our local arrogant way and and in a hundred years' time there'll be another committee that'll do exactly the same thing and whatever people are obsessed about in a hundred years' time will come through again. So
1: in actual fact what's going to happen on the ground I suspect is very little. I mean the, the, the committee has a point in one sense, Andrew, and I'd like you to respond to this, which is that museums are clearly not neutral spaces. So I was in... Um, uh, Stockholm a couple of years ago and I went to the National Museum and there was at the very end so you you do the history of Sweden from you know uh, medieval times to today and um, it's all very left-wing as you can imagine because it's Sweden Um, uh, but at the end of it it had quite a cool little exhibition a room called something like alternative interpretations where they displayed little artifacts that were contrary to the story that they told in the rest of so and it, it and it was just sort of weird things that have been found. So, for instance, there's like Muslim embroidery found in Sweden from the 13th century, and they're like, oh, you know, that doesn't really fit the standard narrative that we've told you, and we don't really know how to how that matches um, uh, to most of our interpretations of history. But it, I mean, and and I think the the committee is right in so far as you clearly when you're doing these museums, you're telling a very explicit story, now it could be a left-wing story, it could be a right-wing story, it could be... But, but there's no such thing as a neutral museum and maybe it's just worth accepting that or just
3: recognising it? Well, that's true. So the, the, the great the, the, the truth at the heart of the series of lies that makes up <laughs> postmodernism is that uh, our institutions are constructed, right? That's actually true. Um, in fact, it's a truism. Right. So I mentioned Derrida before, the idea of deconstruction, the idea that any given thing is defined as much by what's excluded as included is absolutely true and, in fact, doesn't tell you all that much. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not, they're not neutral. They tell a particular story. Um, but I think, and this touches on what Sinclair was saying, I think that's, that's true, that the artefacts that are collected will still be the same and some of the centrepieces of the collection will always be on display, Right. But there are other things. So the collections... Then no the one collection. wants to
1: take your Rosetta stone. Yeah.
3: The collection... Okay.
2: The, you were the person photographing it when we were last there. <laughs> that's <laughs> all I'm
3: saying. I think the Egyptians <laughs> want it back. The, co- the collections are much bigger <laughs> than what's on display, though. Right. Right. Someone yes. makes a choice yes. about what's on display. Yes. Someone also makes a choice about the story that's told and someone makes a choice about what story in particular is told to children. Uh, and that can change. Sweden is, in fact, a great example because... Uh, it is engaged in perhaps history's greatest experiment of what it can lie to children about. <laughs> uh, and I think... So, it's, museum, museum's a great battleground to have for, the, for this debate because can their narrative survive contact with reality? The artefacts are themselves real... And you can impose your own interpretation and they
0: they can survive longer than than most uh ridiculous narratives because they're Mm. they're they're accessing taxpayer funds i mean and and yeah okay so if it's if it is part of the culture wars fine i mean when when they built the national museum in in canberra it became apparent i i I think it may have been built under the the howard government and and uh, they realized that this was Basically, just going to be a massive black armband sitting on the banks of Lake Burley Griffin that was being constructed <laughs> like with the rest of Canberra with with with, <laughs> t- with taxpayers' money. That's right, very much of a of a piece. But it was meant to the idea of a national museum was that it would it would some and so it was gently pointed out to the people that were doing this project that perhaps it'd be good if, in some ways, this reflected back to the people of Australia their own sense of self and their heritage and their past and d- give all due. Um, uh, 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 accord to the, the bad things that happened in Australia and the terrible things we've done but also recognise the good things. So the response of those who had this project to establish this um, concrete and steel black armband on the banks of Lake Burley Griffin was to go out and they bought an FJ Holden and a Hills Hoist <laughs> and, and a bloody victim Mower and they put that and that was an exhibition yeah, yeah. and it was
1: like, there you go, you wanted Australia. We found a genuine white picket fence. Yeah, we?
0: yeah, <laughs> there's Australia. And it was the <laughs> biggest single digit in the air towards John <laughs> Howard you could imagine. But, you know, they sat there with a straight face and said, there you go, that's balance. We've balanced up the story. So yeah.
2: that, that I think sync is more likely what we're going to see in the future. Well, yes and no. Um, <laughs> to be quite honest, John Howard should have known better. Um, and when you are setting up these things now, you end up with something very different than when you send up, say, the British Museum. Hmm.
3: Um, but isn't that a shame? I mean, isn't it a shame that a country can't establish a national museum without being worried with about with all what the, the stuff looted from it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <Napoleon laughs> they, they no. no, no. Some range. of the best,
2: some of the best Egypt stuff is in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Pergamon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. Ma- m- it's magnificent. It is um, the Star uh, Gate. They've but but, but I mean, is, is it, but you see the things. I mean, Australia's too young a country to have museums. Um, we're still doing Nonsense. the lived experience. No,
0: well, we're no. the world's oldest, sixth oldest living continuous democracy.
2: And, <laughs> well, there you go. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you say that like it's a good thing. Is, 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 this, is, is, is this your contention? Uh, yeah, yeah we, we, we survived. No, we. <laughs> um, I still think. I still think um, this is a case of 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 lunatic people in charge getting paid far too much money, with too much time on their hands and not enough work to do. Um, and we see that through many institutions, including universities. Dare I say it? Um, and in actual fact, what's going to happen on the ground is going to be very little change.
0: We'll come back in ten years for our uh, one thousandth episode of Looking Forward, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how we <laughs> Before with
2: that. we move on, I just want to, uh, one last uh, reminiscence. There's a great Doctor Who episode where the Doctor is walking through a museum, looking at the exhibition, saying, "That's wrong. That's wrong. That's <laughs> wrong." <laughs>
0: I was there. I was there. Um, speaking of uh, uh, culture picks, uh, Doctor Who would be. Was that your culture pick, or do you actually have something uh, else you wanted to share with us? Unfortunately, I, I do
2: have something else. Unfortunately, I don't know when Doctor Who is returning because it's one of my favourite shows. It's the only reason I watch the ABC.
0: I'm actually looking at my reflection with these headphones. I'm feeling very much like a Cyberman, actually. I think <laughs> if these were silver, <laughs> it would be, be good. No, but uh, what have you been uh, reading, watching or listening to? I Steve?
2: have been watching, I know it's very dated now, I've been watching uh, Boardwalk Empire. Uh, the story of prohibition in the United States in the 1920s. I am almost through uh, episode uh, season two, and I've been loving Steve every Buscemi. second. absolutely, yeah. yes, yes, Great it, it is. A, it's it's a fantastic show. Um, they've they've spent good money. They haven't skimped, and the the, the story is improving.
0: I mean, it was—it's a couple of years old now, but that's one of the beauties of being able to go back and stream stuff and binge watch. And Absolutely,
2: yes. So it's—it's um, it's, it's on uh, Foxtel, and uh, once upon a time you had to wait week by week by week as the story dribbled out, which I really hate. Whereas now, on a, on a good evening, I can get three episodes in before it's time to go to bed, um, and so you can watch a season in a week. Um, and, and, s- and there's there's a public choice lesson in there from Recollection,
0: which is the uh, the. Bootleggers and Baptists absolutely come it out and see somebody can you remind me how that how so
2: that the the stories about prohibition in the United States the very first episode starts the night prohibition comes in and then you watch all these gangsters um, and of course diverse gangsters so we have uh, um, the, the, the Irish mafia we have the Italian mafia probably the Irish not-called mafia but um, we have the Irish Mafia, the Italian mafia the Jewish mafia the the African- American mafia and how all these people are interacting with each other murdering each other, Uh, And then you have the Women's Temperance League, um, who are also (laughs) at the the same time (laughs) uh, sort of saying, uh, no man whose lips touch alcohol will touch ours. Um, And and you actually have the the breakdown of civil society when you actually have government coming in and telling people what they can and can't do. So there's this wonderful sort of morality play going on in the background as all these very rich characters are are, are interacting with each other. And Steve
0: Buscemi's gangster character is a a great supporter of the uh, financial. Supporter of the women's temperance. He league. is
2: indeed. He ends up marrying <laughs> one Pro- of their their their, their most uh, because uh, vocal prohibition's members. very good for business. Yeah, very good for business. Yes, yes, and and um and it's also sort of the the corruption because he is a uh, he's the he's the treasurer of, of Atlantic City. Now, uh, Nucky Thompson, who, who's the, the Steambushimi character, he himself is 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 based on a real person, but isn't a real person. But in the story, you have all these very famous American gangsters, sort of playing supporting roles. So there's Al Capone, there's uh, uh, um, um, Lansky, all these people. That if you if you look up on, on Wikipedia, they were real people. They did real things. So I've been able to say to my wife while we're watching, um, he lives to the 1960s He as <laughs> He's not going to die during uh, during the series. I'm um, just loving it. Excellent. No good tip,
3: Andrew. Uh, I am also watching a TV show. Uh, I have just finished watching season three of a show that is called Money Heist in English. It has a very generic title. That that it's a Spanish. Uh, Heist drama. heist, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, the the name in... Didn't translate well. Yeah, the name in... It's actually ironic in a way. Okay, the name in Spanish is La Casa de Papel, which means the house of paper or paper house. Um, The heist takes place at the National Mint. And they go there to take over the machines ah, and so print this is their about, own
0: money. This is about fiat currency. So you <laughs> oh, guys think you've got an equal. We'll, we'll,
3: yeah. uh, actually, <laughs> we're gonna uh, get into that. <laughs> yeah, which is which is the, the irony is that it's normally an English title that gets translated into Spanish in an exceedingly literal way. So, like, if you have, say, speed. The movie Speed, it gets translated into Spanish or something like, like in The Simpsons, the joke, the bus that couldn't slow down. <laughs> like in, La- in Latin America, all the all the Gringo movies have these kind of these, these nice. kinds of titles. But the the, the show is really interesting. The show is like one of the uh, biggest hits that Netflix has ever had. Um, incredibly popular in Europe and Latin America. Um, the first two seasons takes place in this this heist where they they take over the mint and they stage a kind of. Uh, Series of kind of distractions while they try and print this money and get it out. Um, And then the third season, um, for various reasons, mostly to do with Netflix wanting another season, um, they're breaking in, stealing Spain's national gold reserves. The show has a weird... Oh, that,
0: that's everything they... What's left over from South America in the 16th yeah, century. The show has this they
3: weird, still got it's some. It's
1: like... In, did you ever watch Prison Break back in the day where they <laughs> escape the prison, go back in the prison, escape the prison <laughs> again, go back... In the yeah, job. they were like, no, we have to do
3: it all again. And the show kind of retcons a few a few of the characters to make it out like that they always had this plan of doing the second, this second heist. But it's, it's actually a really good show. It has a kind of weird left-wing, left-populist undertone of, like, striking back at Spain's corrupt, corrupt institutions, things like that. Um, could have easily gone the other way and had a kind of right populist thing, um, but it didn't. Um, so, anyway, it's actually it's actually really good show. You just have to get into, I think I've said this on this show before, for, before, you just have to get into the spirit of wild mood changes between scenes. And once you're on board with that style of storytelling, this is... The word heist gets me in the door, basically. If you have a movie that's about a really complex way of stealing something, like <laughs> you've invested altogether too much time in stealing the stuff, <laughs> I'm there. It's, it's actually. So is, it, is,
2: it du- is it dubbed or, or subtitles?
3: Uh, subtitles, okay. Yeah. okay. Very good. No, that's one of the good
0: things
1: about Netflix. Um, Chris, actual books, actual books, actual books. Are these real books? These are real books. Thank you for asking Sinclair. You've written one of them. So I, um, I'm going to take the privilege of co-hosting the podcast to talk about two books that I and colleagues have written in the last or have published in the last two weeks, in fact. So, um, both on blockchain, both, um, published by academic publishers, I'm afraid, but, um, Uh, So not real books. So not real books. But the first one is um, Understanding the Blockchain Economy, an Introduction to Institutional Crypto Economics. And that's by um, myself, Sinclair Davidson, um, and uh, Jason Potts, of course, um, our colleague at the Blockchain Hub. And that's basically... So listeners will have heard us talk about blockchain or me mention blockchain um, uh, in almost every episode so far of this show because that's my job, that's what they pay me to do. Um, This is the... um, first major output of that research project and it's about how Sinclair, Jason and I think that um, the economy is going to fundamentally reshape given that we have a strange new database technology. So um, spelling that out from um, an economic perspective, um, sort of step by step, Sinclair um, are you pleased with this book? Are you, are you happy? Uh, yes, I am. You've got a big it's, smile on your no, face. It,
2: it, 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 is, uh, it is a magnificent book, let me say, <coughs> and uh, out in time for Christmas. Out in time for Christmas. Um, <laughs> uh, good, good, good stocking stuffer and all that. Um, but more importantly, um, what everybody's been talking about when blockchain came out as a technology is more or less the gory technical details of the technology, and people have kind mm. of run from there. So gory technical detail, then all of a sudden people jump to money, and then it's going to change identity what have you and what we've actually come up with is an economic framework so we're not actually talking about the gory technology itself we're talking about the economics of the technology as it rolls out so we're not inventing airplanes we're talking about flying um, if, if, if that kind of makes sense. And so our, our story is is, is that um, as as the world's accounting technology has changed over many thousands of years, so the economy and business models have changed. And what we are seeing now with the blockchain is a change in accounting technology. Now the last time we had a change in accounting technology in any serious sense was 600 years ago, when double entry bookie, bookkeeping came Fra-picholi. out. Legend. Yes. Now, now you you probably realise, of course, that he didn't invent double entry bookkeeping. Oh yourself. no! He was, don't destroy he was my right, oh, terribly sorry. He was sorry, right, Scott. Read he on. Was, he was <laughs> writing a textbook about this technique that was already known, called the Italian method. Of, of 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 accounting, um, but even then it's, it's it's uncertain where it actually originated, um, and that actually gave rise more or less over time to large industrial businesses we currently know it. Um, then of course we had the the automation of 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 power where we moved away from human muscle to machine muscle, and our argument now is that we are moving away from human trust into machine trust. So the 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 real insight what blockchain is doing is actually industrializing trust. So all the institutions in society that currently Creating gender sustained trust are all going to be disrupted. Those gusty newspapers are going to be I like taken has, over. It has kind <laughs> of like a
3: Malcolm Gladwell kind of reductionist thing, like the entire history of the world is reduced to like, I look forward to his version of it. It's like in, <laughs> called like infinite spreadsheet. And it's just like, uh, it's just like, yes. every, it's like the way you walk your dog but is you put explained it this way. by put, how numbers so, go so, into a page.
1: So, so put it this way so um, we structure society around um, uh, problems of trust. So we have markets and we have firms and we have governments provide trust by arresting people and locking them up forever, as uh, as we pointed out. But now we've got another one. So that doesn't say that everything that other institutions are going to do is going to be replaced, but they're suddenly competitive. Mm. Something's really fundamentally going to change. Now, we're trying to map out what we think the dimensions of that change will be. But that change is sort of an entrepreneurial choice, which leads me to the second book, and I won't. We won't talk as much about this, and my, maybe we'll raise it on another podcast if I can get one of my other co-authors on. is called Crypto Democracy: How Blockchain Can Radically Expand Democratic Choice. I've written this with Darcy Allen and Aaron Lane, both um, at RMIT and also adjunct fellows at the IPA. And um, this is about how we can rethink the possibilities of democracy. Under a, um, uh, using the technology. So right now we have a representative democracy. Um, we're very eager. Not allegedly. Uh, allegedly. We're no, very no.
2: eager. Our, our representative democracy works exactly, exactly as it's designed. designed.
1: Right <laughs> now we're very eager to have much more participatory or direct democracy. We are all excited by the opportunities of voting for whether we stay in the European Union in the United Kingdom or whether um, the same-sex marriage plebiscite and so forth. This is a way that we can use blockchain to um, – or well, this is an exploration of how we can use blockchain to have a more democratic democracy which is um anyway we might talk about that some other yeah,
0: way Yeah yeah no let's come back to that two two interesting books and a great summary from sync on the on the first I'm one I'm trying to think
3: of a heist movie idea for cryptocurrency Mm, it's uh, too easy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, no, I, unfortunately, I, it makes things dull for you. Yeah. yeah. An hour and a half of someone tapping away at a keyboard.
2: Yeah. Mm. That's very exciting. That, that, that's our lives. I mean, yeah. would you I'd rather, <laughs> rather
0: have one of Berg's Swedish train movies? <laughs> um, oh. Back, back to uh, s- streaming. Actually, just one, one we'll th- Just let that one fly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I've been watching The Boys, which is actually on, on Amazon Prime because you can never have too many streaming services, um, based on a, on a comic book. It's, uh, I, I did sort of enjoy season one. It's very well produced, well acted, interesting stories, good characters. Um, but I have been reflecting. It's, it's based on a comic book. Um, uh, from it's, The comic book was about ten years ago. And it's in a world where there are superheroes, um it uh, is a comic book uh it is a comic book and and a series um but the superheroes are not necessarily the good guys they're actually allied with a a corporation they're managed by they have you know pr agents and marketing people and they're under contract to this this corporation and um so i've really been as someone who grew up when comics were about actual superheroes who were actual good guys, <laughs> I must admit, in my in my child with my childlike sense of morality, I've really been struggling <laughs> with with just seeing what complete assholes these these people but are. But
2: just if, if you had superpowers, you would be like a hero and not a villain.
0: Oh, completely, yes. My my ethics are impeccable. Don't worry, worry about that. I mean... Oh, dear. When I was a kid, you know... Well, you know, the, when you're 10 years old, you keep thinking about the possibilities of X-ray vision, but hopefully you grow out of that.
2: Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, so,
3: I mean, to the extent... So I, I have this problem with superheroes, right? So like, if you watch, like, X-Men, right? Professor Xavier, right... He can actually blow someone up from the inside out by projecting his mind into theirs. Yes. That guy should be regulated. Oh, I don't care. Put him <laughs> on a list. He should be on a list. And well,
2: if you know s- the X Men story, they are regulated and, and persecuted. To bring this all the way back, by bring this Anderson. all the way back
3: to the start. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has a superpower. Go he on. has. Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> has the superpower. The same thing. He can put himself in your mind anytime, anywhere. Put him on a list.
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, <laughs> this this yeah. would certainly support to, your contention to because they are the terrible people <laughs> doing terrible things, using terrible language, and the and the so-called good guys that are trying to bring them down also go around swearing. Uh, an incredible amount, and uh, and killing people and blowing things up. So there's absolutely no sounds one sounds like the government. No one of any moral worth whatsoever in this entire series. And I just it was like when I was talking about Barry a few weeks ago. I think is every show on a streaming service that's not in Spanish now just rep- <laughs> carrying forward this sort of nihilistic view that nothing has any meaning and every everyone is reprehensible. I'm just. Uh, I'm not sure I'll settle yes, up for even s- the museums. season two either. <laughs> even, the museums. Uh, even the museums. What a great positive note to finish looking forward to. Uh, Wonderful. The
2: end of Western civilization as oh, we no, know no, it. No, no, no. This is the comics attitude. So um, the, the, the author of that particular comic is a guy called Garth Innes, yeah. um, who's from the United Kingdom, and he started writing for a comic called 2000 AD. Um, oh. And so he was for a while the, I think he was the lead writer for Judge Dredd. Um, and so it comes. He's out never of, really had a positive vision for humanity. Well, it saying. sort of comes yeah. out of that whole sort of milieu uh, perspective and what have you. And um, for for a long time, uh, that's what the comic readers have been demanding. That sort of nihilistic view of the world. If you go back to the nineteen eighties, was all very positive, nice. The, the superheroes were sweet and all that sort of stuff. And then they suddenly became dark. And then also coming out of the the, the sort of the, the the British comic tradition was Mike Moore who wrote The Watchman. Yeah. And the whole idea of the Watchmen was uh, 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 Bushnell's idea, we've got to put these people on the list, we've got to control them, we've got to have uh, uh, um, masks, Uh, So we've got to have badges, not masks, and all this sort of stuff. Um, So yes, um, that is a tradition within the the, the, the comics world, which of course is broken into mainstream culture, which is what consumers
1: are demanding, and therefore that's what consumers get. We need to focus on rehabilitating the superheroes and getting them back in the workforce. Well, we, need to, we need to
3: have a culture that encourages them to do good things rather than <laughs> bad things. I think, I think we need to bring back the
0: Comics Code the ho- authority. The hi- the oh, good. I was thinking, bring <laughs> back the, we, the need to, we need to order <laughs> our superheroes towards <laughs> the higher good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the it was
2: It was always very, very unlikely that Superman <coughs> would land in a field with some crazy hick farmers from Kansas who wanted him to do the world of good. Or that, oh, Spida- well, or that Spider-Man's uncle would say, with great responsi with great power comes great responsibility, and all this sort of stuff. These are very unimaginable. Oh, well, that things. was that
0: was another show I saw a promo for. It was um, it was like the Superman kid, you know, sent sent to Earth. Um, he's right he does find a nice family, but it, but it's like. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin meets Superman <laughs> the kid starts growing up and he's actually not very nice at all um, oh, DC
2: is. Comics actually once did a thing what happened if uh, Superman uh, crashed into the Soviet Union instead of into Kansas in the United States and there was actually quite a nice graphic novel around that
0: oh, well, he, um, he would have met Hayek read <laughs> you know, the, uh, use of knowledge in society. Uh, and, uh, 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 he would have seen there was, through it. He would there
2: have seen was through it. was the Batman story where he gets the um, he he recovers Ludwig von Mises' uh, um, yeah. um, study uh, from the Nazis. So when we, when when Anschluss came into into Vienna, the Nazis actually confiscated Ludwig von Mises' um, library and uh, uh, they packed it up, and then after the war, the Soviets found his library, and, I mean, they had no idea what it was, but they kind of thought it must be important because the Germans have kept it. So they packed it up, and they <laughs> shipped it off to, uh, off, off to Moscow, and it lived in a warehouse in the Soviet Union until the collapse of communism, when uh, I think it was Richard Ebling or one of these mm. guys was wandering around a Soviet-era warehouse full of books, and he found Ludwig von Mises' study and, 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 and a library from Vienna from the 1930s. And, and that's why the Soviet Union fell. It was uh, corrupted uh, one from the inside <laughs> by libertarian ideas.
0: You have been listening to Looking Forward, in which the views of the panellists do not necessarily reflect the views of the IPA. To access our research or to join or donate, please go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you, first of all, to our panellists, Chris Berg. thanks Scott. Sinclair Davidson. Thank you. And Andrew Bushnell. Thank you. And, of course, our producer for the day, Saul Muscatel. Thank you, Saul. We'll be back with more. Looking forward to next week.